Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Do the people working in American politics actually believe in anything? I'm Sean Ealing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That's a loaded question, but it's not a bad one. One of the many things we've learned in the Trump era is that a lot of the people in positions of power are either cynics or nihilists or both. And the whole political process itself is fundamentally broken. This is true on both sides of the political aisle, but it's especially true on the right at the moment. That's not a partisan statement, even if it may sound like one. The reality is that ever since Donald Trump took over the party in 2016, there are many people working in Republican politics who do not believe in what they're doing, who know that Trump is and was a dangerous figure, and yet they've plowed ahead anyway. The question is, why? A new book by Tim Miller called Why We Did It gives about as good an answer as you'll find. Miller is a former political operative who worked at various levels of Republican politics since he was 16 years old. Yes, 16. He broke ranks with the party when Trump won the nomination, and his book is a genuine attempt to grapple with his own contradictions and make sense of the people he left behind. The result is an unusually insightful glimpse behind the curtain. I started my conversation with Tim Miller with some old-fashioned honesty. I got to be honest, I expected to hate this book (laughs) because it's a hard book to write because the easiest way to do it is also the most obnoxious, where it's like saturated with an above it all air of pretentiousness. And someone like me doesn't learn anything from a book like that I didn't already know about this world. 
And that is not what this book is. It is honest, funny, introspective. I loved it. And I'm not an ass kisser, so I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it. Well, that is really sweet. I had two main goals, which was to be as honest as possible, painfully honest if necessary, and to have the book not be homework. A lot of political books are homework. And pretentiousness and homework go hand in hand. Yeah. So part of it is that. And another part of it is there are all these books by the John Boltons of the world like talking about how bold they were and how their care for the republic led them to do the right thing. And it's like, go pound sand. Come on, man. Like This is ridiculous. This is an easy call. So the real question worth exploring is why so many people didn't make such an easy call, not why us never-Trumpers are so courageous and wonderful. Yeah, that is a thing. And I think your journey in Republican politics is really the core of the book. And I just want to start there. Sure. And I was surprised to learn that you started working in Republican politics when you were 16. Mm -hmm. Jesus, Tim, 16? Mm -hmm. Were you just a political junkie that early in your life? Yeah, total political junkie. And don't know why my parents weren't. My grandmother was really into Republican politics. And so we would talk about politics and we gambled on the 1992 presidential race. I took Bill Clinton. She took George H.W. Bush. She had to mail me $1 with my winnings, which I was extremely proud of in fifth grade. And that was the last time I supported a Democrat until Hillary Clinton in 2016. So, you know, it kind of went full circle there. But yeah, I was a dorky political junkie, model UN. Oh God, I know the type. You know the type. Yeah, you can just totally typecast me. There was nothing original about it. I was a privileged suburban kid who was attracted to kind of normie Republican politics. And my neighbor, our little cul-de-sac, cul-de-sacs are a policy failure, but my neighbor in the cul-de-sac knew a guy that was running for governor. And he asked me if I wanted to volunteer for him or intern for him, and I did. He ends up becoming the governor. His name was Bill Owens. He beat Gail Shetler in that 1998 race by like a couple thousand votes. It went late into the night. And for a nerdy model UN dweeb on a Tuesday night, on a school night, staying up till 2.30 in the morning, I was hooked, man. I was hooked on the, on the game. I guess maybe what I'm really wondering is, did you actually identify strongly as a conservative back then? Or was it more flippant than that? Like you were just choosing a team or you were just trying to piss off your parents or whatever? Yeah, no. <laughs> I think I, I did. This this stuff is all going to feel kind of cliche now. So for the liberal listeners, just kind of get your barf bag ready here for one minute. But I did believe in kind of the up from the bootstraps kind of element. My dad was that. He was a guy that had worked his ass off and succeeded. And I saw that and felt like kind of less government intrusion on his success was better. I did believe that the Republicans believed in the shining city on the hill BS that America was a force for good in the world, that we were of a historical importance, that people you know, came to our shores to achieve success, and it didn't matter where they came from in the globe. That appealed to me kind of in a weird way, especially with MAGA. Formative during my time was the Elian Gonzalez thing, where the parties were kind of flipped on the immigration thing, right? Shouldn't this kid have a chance here in America was like the Republican pro-Cuban kind of position, right? And as a younger person, I saw the Clinton, Janet Reno government crackdown on that as against my instincts. And then I was in Colorado. So the Colorado Republicans were green. Like that was a thing back then, right? They did care about the environment. So that was something I cared about. I get into in the book, obviously I was crossways with the party on gay stuff. So that was, I think, the main issue. But at the time I had some earnest reasons for joining the party. I think very quickly, 
once I got into politics, mostly I liked the political combat and the game of it. Well, you mentioned the gay stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just now. Like, the gay stuff's pretty important. <laughs> yeah, it's super important. The Republican Party has changed a lot since you were 16, but for reasons you just suggested, it was always an awkward home for you. You're gay and you talk about how easily you contorted yourself into defending homophobes for years. I mean, you call it championship level compartmentalization in the book. Yeah. But damn, that sounds like a really difficult pose to maintain for so many years. It's hard for me to imagine. Actually, not really. It wasn't that wasn't that difficult. And that's the thing that makes it so gross. It makes me feel so bad about it. And I think that it's important for me to explain that because yeah. I use this as a parallel to, okay, well, if I could work for homophobes, when the fact that the people that I was working for were literally trying to use the law to deny me the things that are the most important things in my life right now, my husband, my child. Like, okay, well, then think about how easy it is for somebody to justify, you know, if they're in the heat of politics, like working for Donald Trump when none of the impacts of his policies hurt them. Yeah. Like, they aren't kids on the border, right? They're not going to be the ones that are punished by the new abortion laws or whatever the case may be, right? So that's why I tried to make this parallel and tried to make people really understand my mindset. And I went back, there was a lot of cringy reflections in this book, but the cringiest, I think, was the Advocate magazine, Carrie Elveld, great reporter woman. She interviewed me back in 2010 or something because I was one of the more visible, maybe the most visible, like actively gay Republican, like Ken Melman and some others had retired. And she asked me like how I did it. And she asked me about this moment where John McCain, who I was working for, had said on Hardball, you know, he said, if gays want to have a little garden party, like, that's fine. I don't think the government should do anything about it. It was a very inoffensive sort of notion, right, that government shouldn't be involved if two people want to decide to have a ceremony. His advisor comes off stage right during the commercial break, tells him to change it. The next question comes up. It's about, like, farm subsidies. And at the end of the question, he tacks on, like, oh, by the way, I still think marriage is between a man and a woman. Carrie Elveld asked me what I th was thinking at that time. And so I have this like document that can tell you what I was thinking because I told a reporter in an interview and I went back and reread all of it. And it just makes me, it's like I, just a full body cringe. I basically told her, I was like, I was mad at McCain because it was dumb what he did. And I was so focused on winning and I was so focused on wanting the candidate I was working for to become the president or the nominee that I was pissed at him at first for making that mistake, for making that gaffe. And then later after that wore off, I thought, you know, I somehow used it to rationalize, oh, this is kind of nice, actually, you know, to know that my boss might want to use the law to prevent me to get a wedding. <laughs> but like deep down in his heart of hearts, he doesn't mind. But it's really not that hard to understand. And you do talk about the gamification of politics in the book, right? Yeah. Where the stakes never feel truly high because there's this background assumption, acknowledged or not, that the world is more or less on stable ground, and it'll be fine either way. Yes. But who, boy, that whole orientation to politics now seems like such a luxury, doesn't it? Yeah. Probably the biggest influence book on my book is a book that's kind of lost to history that I'd recommend to people is Michael Lewis. Might be the book of Michael Lewis that sold the least copies. So it was called Losers. It was about the 1996 Republican primary. And he's this outsider who's coming into politics to observe it. And he's just writing about how the stakes between Clinton and Dole feel so low and how the people that work for them just seem so uninterested in actual 
impact on people and like that all they care about is their clever strategies and tactics. It's a football game. Yeah. yeah, it's a football game to them. And as I was reading that book, I was like, this really is kind of the nub of where, and I think there are also some other unique things that we get into about the Republican Party that, you know, obviously the Trump failure has a million fathers, but this is an element that's lost, right? Like when the stakes feel so low and people get so comfortable advancing arguments that they know are bullshit, that they know are going to, you know, rile people up, that they know are going to inflame, then should we really have been that surprised then that like a game show host would have been better at that than a bunch of us Model UN dorks, right? I mean, there were some other underlying problems with the party, but like that is a key element to how Trump ended up just dominating all of us, but then also to how people got comfortable going along with it because they've been going along with shit they didn't really believe the whole time. Yeah. What was your eureka moment? When did you finally realize that you had had enough, that this whole thing had gone too far and you weren't a Republican anymore? This is the worst answer that I can give you. Let's hear it. I fucking knew it with Palin. I knew it. That was the moment for me too. I mean, I was never Republican, but that was the real Rubicon crosser. Al-Qaeda terrorists still plot to inflict catastrophic harm on America. And he's worried that someone won't read him their rights. And this is why the first half of the book is me in a hair shirt. You know, a lot of people come to these interviews are like, why is it why we did it? Like, you opposed Trump from day one, which I did. But it's why we did it, because I sat there for seven years as this beast kind of grew and grew and became more and more dangerous. And I knew it. I, like, I, I leave the McCain campaign because they did a restructuring in the middle. And so I moved to D.C. I come out of the closet. And I'm like working for a PR firm. Not good guys. Black hat PR firm. But okay. I still can see what's happening clearly. And at the time, I'm just with all my friends and in private. I even created a fake Twitter account making fun of Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman at the time. I was like, I just, I saw, yeah, I saw it all clearly. I was like, the crazies are taking this over. And like John McCain is a good man who's trying to manage the crazy and making some good choices, some bad choices while he does that. But the power, the energy is with the reactionaries. And I saw it then. And yet, I still just keep getting sucked back in. And, you know, I got the old Godfather thing. And the first way I get sucked back in is kind of earnest, actually. I go to work for John Huntsman. And I'm like, I kind of know this guy's going to lose, but I'm a moderate Republican and I'm going to go work for this moderate. But I get addicted to the competition of it again and then slowly start going down the path to working for more and more gross people. But I did have that moment of clarity when I was on a little bit of a political sabbatical. You know, I dealt with my gayness. All right, honest question. Yeah, do it. What if Trump barely lost the bid for the Republican nomination in 2016. What if someone like Ted Cruz, who, in my opinion, is truly as pathetic as Trump and and maybe almost as despicable, what if he won? Even then, it would have been clear what the party truly was. Would you have kept riding that tiger? Would you have worked for Cruz if he was the guy in the 2016 presidential campaign? It's a really good question because this exact counterfactual is something that I just spent a lot of time mulling over by myself in periods of alone time while I was writing this and before while I was contemplating what I was going to write because I just don't think I can answer that question honestly. And I think that's bad enough that I don't know that I could have said no for sure. I do think that probably Ted Cruz was over the line for my husband 
and the notion that maybe he would have allowed me to do the general election, but working for a Ted Cruz White House, I think, probably would have caused me to get a divorce. But I think that has nothing to do with my internal moral compass and everything about him. But I think that the reality is that I did see Trump as uniquely dangerous in a way that Cruz wasn't. And Cruz, I agree with you, is, is despicable. We can all decide on our gradations of despicable who is higher, but Cruz is disgusting. But Trump is like uniquely dangerous because of the long tail effects of who the hell knows what he's going to do. Like Ted Cruz, as horrible as he is, really probably couldn't have created a lie about an election and then kept it going for two years and stoked a mob of 10 million people. And he's not charismatic enough for that. Like there are a lot of things that would have kept Ted Cruz from being able to get a mob of people to charge the Capitol waving Ted Cruz flags. Like it's hard to really imagine that happening. So Trump is uniquely dangerous in some ways, but the underlying element of their flaws are the same. And I don't know. I, I knew them. I was kind of helping Ted Cruz in the primary because I felt that way. After Jeb lost, we did the Our Principles Pack, and I was essentially a Cruz surrogate because he was the most likely person to beat Trump. So I, the Cruz people liked me, and they would call me for advice or tips or stuff from time to time, so I knew all of them. And so it's not at all out of the realm of possibility that if we go to the general election, they would have been like, you know, we need someone to soften our image. Like, let's go hire the gay, moderate Jeb guy, right? Like, that is not a crazy possibility, and I really just don't know what I would have said is the answer. And I think that that is, I don't know if I actually included it, but when I write about Alyssa Farah trying to explain her internal machinations about just trying to decide what to do, what she does, I kind of reflect on that because I do think that her rationalizations are a little different, but there's some similarities with how I would have dealt with a Cruz win. Now, look, I appreciate it. An honest non-response over a, a bullshit response. So <laughs> I'll take it. Well, it's, not, it's a real response. I don't know. I, the real answer is I don't know. I might have. I, yeah. I don't think so. I want to think I don't think so. But it would be a lie for me to be like, I definitely would have held the line against Ted Cruz. I think I would have considered it. There were a lot of Republicans. A lot who privately did not support Donald Trump. And yet, publicly, they were all in. Why? That's what I'll ask Tim Miller after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The second half of the book is really about the actors behind the scenes in the Republican Party, the functionaries, the spend doctors, yeah. the campaign hacks. You know, these are the people who <laughs> often know what they're doing, often know they shouldn't do it, and just do it anyway. And the reasons they do it are as banal as they are depressing. And one thing that comes across very quickly is that it really is a game for a lot of these people. And if you really push them on it, what you find is that there's no real moral core behind it. There's no there there. It's just 
careerist jockeying for influence and attention. And that is, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that, but damn, it's so maddening. It's really depressing. Like the characters in the book, almost all of them, with one or two exceptions in the second half about the Trump era, my former colleagues and friends, all of them see him clearly with one or two exceptions and go along with it anyway. Yeah. And so this is then the question, which is why? And this is gross in a different way, but you almost want it to be because, like, they've really bought the bullshit about how we need to have a secure border to help wages, right? That would be better, actually. I would still be unhappy with it, but that would be better. Right. It's worse than that. Yeah, or they just are so hardline on protecting fetuses or so hardline on whatever, they just couldn't. And some of those people exist, like in real America, right? But in the D.C. class, none of them. And that includes the named people in the book. I also interviewed a bunch of people who I didn't name because to your question of I would rather have an honest non-response, what you said earlier, I wanted that. Like I went and found my old people I'd worked with and I said, I want to have beers with you and I'll take your honest off-the-record response to help inform how I write about these other people that I'm going to name. And nobody... Nobody got passionate talking about any policy issue. That's all a feint. It's all bullshit. The only time I could sense any emotion in their voice when they were explaining why they went along with Trump, besides the banal careerist reasons, was that they really started to really not like you, Sean, yeah. in particular. I mean, not like you by name, like none of them named uh-huh. you, but uh-huh. like your people. Yeah. Like the liberal media elites... They've developed a very deep well of hatred and resentment and jealousy, obviously, of them. And even people who are succeeding, like, beyond the average voter's wildest imaginations. And one of my favorite quotes in the book was on background, unfortunately, but it was one consultant talking about another consultant and explaining why this guy who I knew, Mike Shields, that's the person who I named, that's the latter, explaining why he went along with Trump despite like being a longtime moderate Republican like me and knowing better. And the guy said about Shields, the most he'd ever made in his life is a quarter million dollars. And so this was his big moment after Trump won to really cash in. <laughs> like cool. Like only a quarter mil? So these guys are all succeeding with insane beach houses, the whole deal. And yet when I would call Shields, I'd be like, oof, those liberal elites are really getting a good deal. You know, like the media is so nice to them and they're taking over the culture and I'm not invited to be on the panels and like the whole thing. It's bleak, but I think that that is important because a lot of people look at all those folks and say, oh man, they were secret sociopaths or racists or hardline Christian nationalists. And sure, there's some of the, all three of those categories, but most of these people are just kind of like pathetic strivers who are jealous of peers. And like, that's way worse for me. No, there's that. I'm sure you've heard it, that old line that DC is Hollywood for ugly Ugly people. people, So much of this in the age, especially of cable TV, has become a contest for the most lame level of fame imaginable. And to be fair, you do see this on the left and the right. We're like, we're in this golden age of political entrepreneurship. And like, whatever your grift is, you can't make it work without exposure. And so it just, everything becomes about that for a lot of the operators, at least. I'm guilty of this, by the way. And so I see this. It is, it's the Sean Spicer character is the book kind of represents this for me, like in the most obnoxious way possible. Like he's so desperate for fame that he liked it when Saturday Night Live like eviscerated him. And he like went and wore a leprechaun dress on Dancing with the Stars. Like that's how much that dude wants fame. Dancing the Salsa with his partner, Lindsay, it's Sean Spicer. 
and that this is happening in Washington where there's this weird, dorky D.C. fame that people aspire to. And in some ways, it's kind of harmless. But in other ways, again, it separates from what is the whole point of this, which is like trying to come up with policies that make people's lives better. There's no fame in that, right? Like, can you tell me who the lead negotiators were on the Inflation Reduction Act? Not Manchin and Schumer. Like, who are the staffers that were working on that? No, nobody can name those people. There's no incentive of being the Chris Murphy gun staffer. Like, that doesn't get you anything. Like, you get fame by being a hack. And in Republican politics, that is even more true. It's on steroids. You get fame by being, like, a flamboyant conspiracist. Like, that's how you get fame. Now. That's how you get retweets. Yeah. Or by owning the libs the best. And so the incentive structure in this culture is just totally, totally off. And that is driving a lot of why some of these people are doing what they're doing. You become addicted to that. And Spicer obviously became addicted to it in the most extreme way. But there's a ton of mini Spicers like all the way down the fame scale. You're making me think of something that it was occurring to me as I was reading the book. And I don't know, this may annoy you, but you're a friend of the show now. So this is, this is out of love, I promise. Annoy me. There's a moment that I think reflects how much even well-intentioned people, however few there are, inside the political machine, the people sincerely resisting Trump have a really hard time recognizing that they've kind of already lost, that the game has already been handed to Trump or they don't care, right? So like, mm -hmm. there's a part where you're talking about how right after you quit Jeb's campaign and started a vacation in Florida, wherever the hell it was, you got pulled back in by an anti-Trump pack. And your job, which you're very good at, was to go on TV and trash Trump and spar with his hacky defenders. And yeah. you admit how much you loved it. It's the best job I ever had. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a job for sure. <laughs> but it's like, can you see the pointlessness of that? That by merely participating in cable TV in that way, in the kind of politics as theater model, Trump has already won because he's like the apotheosis of that whole way of doing politics. Like part of the reason Trump happened is that this is what our politics has become. And he just like embodies the emptiness of it all. And even today, I think you would admit, you haven't really transcended the game. You've just kind of switched teams. But you're at least, the difference is that now you're able to be yourself and defend your actual values. And there's nobility in that. Wow, there's a lot there. That is an annoying question. Yeah, sorry. I do that sometimes. Thank you. No, no, that's right. You achieved it. I was kind of expecting it to not be that annoying of a question, but it was because you're taking from me like the one pure six weeks of my life, you know? <laughs> so, like, I was living in Miami. I was tan. I was going on TV every day, shit-talking Trump supporters with righteous indignation. Pure and simple times. I do see what you're saying. I don't know exactly what the right answer to that is. You know what I mean? Like, how do you untangle that? The best answer I get to in the book is awareness, right? Is that we have to have this some level of awareness that at least the arguments that we are making are pure of intent. The, the things that we're trying to advance, actually, we think, we don't know, obviously, but like, will accrue to the benefit of the people that we are ostensibly supposed to be serving in the political game. But you're right. I, I knew that people were going to criticize me and say, well, you have switched teams. Like now you have a podcast and you just shit on Trump and you know you're on a book tour and you're doing the same thing. And what I say to that is that like politics is always going to be a competition. Mm -hmm. There's one underlying element of the book of my critiques of all my former colleagues and myself that you can't change. We can 
de-emphasize the gamification of politics. We can't take it away because politics is a competition. You win or you lose at the end of the day, and you have to compete to win or lose. And so what I'm trying to argue is that the way we kind of think about that and justify it and rationalize it and structure the rules of the game need to be reassessed, right? Because the way that we've set this up now, where all of the players don't feel any responsibility or any accountability for outcomes on the right, particularly, there's a different kind of issue on the left we can talk about if you want, but on the right, that's going to lead to a very dark place. It's already leading to a very dark place. I mean, just think about the thousands of people who are dead because they didn't get vaccines because asshole charlatans are playing this game, right? So that's a tough challenge to say, okay, well, how do we engage with this competition and this political competition in a way that's healthy and constructive. Yeah, and what you don't seem to me to be is cynical, right? And Thank you. Or at least not now. Right now, right now. I was super cynical for a while, but I'm going for anti-cynical. The amount of cynicism on display in the characters in this book is just astonishing. I mean, so many of these people involved do not even believe in what they're doing. And it's just par for the course. I don't remember. You may actually, okay, actually he would, he remained on background. There's a GOP staffer somewhere in the book who admits to you that he's never even voted for a Republican presidential candidate. And he's been working in Republican politics, I guess for his entire career. And you worked for an anti-Trump PAC after Jeb's campaign. And every person, except you and I think one other, right? Yeah, one woman. Katie Packer-Beeson, I like to name her. Yeah. Because, you know, she should get credit. <laughs> Everyone else went on to work for a pro-Trump PAC. The same election. In the same election. And the PAC that you were part of, the anti-Trump PAC, was fucking called Our Principles. You can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. And obviously very sad. I'm happy that you have the rage that I did about that. Sometimes people, I tell that story and people are like, yeah, that's politics. I'm like, are you shitting me? We were called our principles. Our principles, Tim. By the way, the principle wasn't like an advocacy group about a certain issue. The principle was that Donald Trump is dangerous and shouldn't be president. <laughs> like, that was the principle in our principles pack. And these people went and started a new pack. They called me. They were on the train. I remember it's Todd Ricketts, who is a scion of the Ricketts family, TD Ameritrade. His dad was actually successful. Yes, this is a little play money. This is like daddy's play money that he's using for these super PACs. And he calls me and he says, we're doing the general election super PAC. And I was like, is this a prank? Like, are you prank calling me right now, Todd? You could do anything. You could do anything. You're a billionaire's kid. You could go move to an island and start an orphanage or be on a board for a company or like start. I, you could do anything, like literally any. You are a part owner of the Cubs. You could just go to every Cubs game. That's 162 days a year, right? Like there's so many things you could do. You're going to do this. And why? After the election, after Trump wins, he gets nominated to be Deputy Commerce Secretary. Mm. Deputy Commerce Secretary. I called Todd. I was like, Todd, I would not take the job of Deputy Commerce Secretary. If Donald Trump called me for that, like, I would not take that gig. Why are you taking this gig? But just this draw of the access to power, the game, the stuff that we've just beaten to death. Like, I just think that that like, anecdote shows how powerful it is. To use a term from the pro wrestling world. It's just kayfabe, right? Yeah, that's it. And for people who don't know, kayfabe is this idea that you do whatever it takes to make people believe that the show is real, even when you know it's not. All of these people know better. And that's like something I don't think people, especially establishment types, understood how effectively Trump took the whole kayfabe thing to the next level. 
right? And I don't actually mean that all of the Trump supporters were rubes. There are a lot of rubes out there all across the spectrum. What I mean is that a lot of people are so accustomed to the bullshit and the public relations claptrap, and they've accepted that that's all it is. That's all they're going to get. And Trump comes along and, in a weird way, totally owns it. And he puts on the most spectacular show they've ever seen. It's like, if you want a circus, here's a goddamn circus. And establishment types, my sense is that they think the kayfabe thing or the performative aspects of politics is like some kind of vehicle to power. It's a means to an end. It's just the way the game is played. But it's the actual game. It's it. That's the game. And Trump almost transcended it in some way by being so transparent about it. But he did it in the worst way imaginable because he was willing to tap into the racism and the cultural resentment at the same time. This is the key insight, right? It's the shamelessness part of it and how he was able to tap into the darker elements of the party. Because when we were playing this game, the establishment, so Trump is obviously better at the performative aspects of that. We don't need to beat the dead horse. You know, people would rather go see a Trump speech than a Ted Cruz or a Jeb Bush speech. I think everyone gets that. But what he was also better at was just his shamelessness at pretending or even he convinces himself, I think, at times, or he just cares about the applause, that he believes and will advocate the darkest, most base element of what the aggrieved Republican voter wants. And everyone else in the establishment is really faking that at some level. Like, it's very hard to find on Mitch McConnell's staff somebody who's like, I really want to build the wall passionately. I passionately care about the wall. Like, it was, building a wall was like the standard Republican position forever. You know, it's like, you could go down the issue list, like, people who are really genuinely concerned about the Ground Zero mosque. And you can name any of these issues. Okay, so what did Republicans do? Normal, team normal. That's uh, air quotes for people listening. Well, we'd like throw them a little red meat about shit we didn't really care about, but you could tell our heart wasn't in it. And voters can sense that the heart wasn't in it. Well, Trump just went whole hog on that stuff. And so he's better at the performance sense, but he's also better at just channeling their rage, their grievance, the conspiracies they believe in. He's shameless about it. He doesn't care. You can't tell that he kind of is faking it because that's just him. Like, that's why, even though he's the biggest liar in the world, people think they, he tells it like it is. And so in that, what Trump really did, what took all of this to the next level was these base voters that were always kind of in charge, but not really because they never fully got what they wanted when it came to governing time, now we're able to have a guy that would give them exactly what they wanted, both in rhetoric and and in policy. And this is, I think, what I try to get at in the book is it's like kind of a secondary key point is the Breitbart commenter, the people that show up to the MAGA rally, in a lot of ways, they are more influential right now on the direction of the party than Josh Holmes, Mitch McConnell's top consultant, Sven Gali. But Josh Holmes doesn't realize it yet. Yeah. And so because I've gotten out of it and I didn't realize it, that was true when I was in too, by the way. But now I can see that much more clearly. And the funniest call I've gotten since this book is from a Breitbart reporter who I insulted in the book, who told me, he was like, you nailed this. <laughs> You nailed it. Like, I I might be mockable. I might be a troll. I might not get invited to the cool parties, but I control these fuckers, and they don't see it yet. Yep. Still, seven years later, 2022. 100%. And one thing that's so clear to me is that the real threat is not the actual demagogue or tyrant or whatever. I mean, they're a problem, of course. The real problem is that there are always these power-drunk nihilist or careerist or whatever, who 
will go along to get along. I mean, these are always the pivotal characters in all of anti-totalitarian literature, from Orwell to Camus, right? Because the wheels of tyranny cannot spin without their hands. And there's a moment in the book where you talk about your dad reaching out to you after you said something mean, I guess, about Mike Pence. And it was quoted in a Wall Street Journal article. And he's like, and this is probably a pretty common sentiment from like, you know, kind of sane Republican types, right? It's like, it's okay to trash Trump, but why Pence? You know, he's, he's one of the adults in the room, right? That's a phrase we heard a lot of. Yeah. He keeps the sanity train rolling, right? Let's not dump on those people. And this is so important to me because it's like the thing you heard a lot and you hear it from people who gave themselves over to something they knew was dangerous. And it's all these mental acrobatics, but ultimately it's just blind ambition masquerading as some fidelity to a higher duty or whatever. But that's all nonsense. Yeah. No, they're the villains in the book, actually. Not yeah. Trump, not the Magus, as the collaborators are the villains. And I get into a very lengthy argument with Alyssa Farah, who listeners don't know, she was the communications director for Trump in the end, despite having you know seen him for what he was before he went in and not voting for him in 2016 on a private ballot. And she kind of makes this adult in the room argument to me, right? And I just keep saying, I just don't see it. There's uh, nothing in my book that's more clear than that great Atlantic article about the child separation policies and just how there were only three kind of acutely evil people that were pushing for it. But then there were just this whole list of accomplices, some of them well-intentioned, some of them horribly intentioned, like underneath them, who made it all happen. And this was true throughout the whole Trump time. This is like the, you're hitting at the core, never Trump, for people who are interested in the inner Nicene belly watching of never Trump fissures. And this is like the core complaint versus from those of us who was like, no, this is all corrupt to the core. We've got to like burn it down versus people who are like, well, we still need the good people in there, et cetera, et cetera, to move along. Yeah. And that remains a fissure. And that is, to me, I just think it's as clear as day that if the people who knew better did the right thing, like the damage would have been much more contained, much more contained. And maybe that would have been a, a more acutely bad thing that happened, but then we would have been done with it. The impeachment, the second impeachment is the classic example of this. Yeah. We're living just a case study. Like there were 17 people who knew better, 17 Republican senators. Had they voted to convict, Trump would be gone. He'd be being investigated right now. He'd be sending truths or whatever, poolside at Mar-a-Lago, but we would not have any risk of him. The Republican Party would be better off. They'd be moving on to Ron DeSantis. I, maybe some listeners that think that this is a worse outcome, but if people just had done what they knew was the right thing to do in that situation, the people who knew better, then we at least would have one problem checked off of our problem list. And yet, we're kind of remain in purgatory. I mean, of all the characters in the book, all the operator types, some of them you know personally, some of them you don't, which of them sticks out to you the most in terms of just like abject nihilism or cynicism yeah. or whatever? I mean, is it, Giuliani, to me, is just like a special class of terrible person, but I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, you're, you're more steeped in this than I am. I think the alcohol might be rotting his brain. So I don't know if I would put him as number one, but it's Elise for me. It's just Elise Stefanik. Can you say who she is? Yeah, sure. So just going all the way back, I worked with her on the Republican autopsy, which people might remember after the Mitt Romney lost. We put together this document that basically had a bunch of blocking and tackling recommendations for how the party can catch up to Obama's data nerds, but also said that we should soften our rhetoric around immigration and, and other issues. Elise was the editor of that document, and I was the spokesperson at the time, so I was working with her very closely. So Elise then runs for Congress as a very moderate Republican. Climate change is a problem, gay marriage, I'm for, immigration reform, 
as moderate of a Republican as you have in Congress when she wins in 2014. 2016, she runs for re-election with Trump on the ballot. Won't say his name. Literally can't even spit out his name. There's this whole local news kind of hilarity I went back and rewatched where, like, cameramen are chasing her down a hallway just trying to get her to admit who she's going to vote for, and she won't. Like, she's running from the cameras. I'm focused on doing my job, and as we come closer to the primary on April 19th, um, I will be casting a vote in the New York primary, and I look forward to talking to you about that as we get closer. So goes into 2017, a mutual friend she tries to recruit because she's trying to create a little caucus of not anti-Trump, but like reluctant Trump people that may be more future-oriented Republicans, whatever you want to term you want to use. I think we need someone who can effectively work with members of Congress. I have yet to see that um, from his candidacy. That continues into 2018. She still is very reluctant on Trump stuff. In 2018, Something happens. I interviewed a lot of people. The flip switches. Trump comes to the campaign in her district. Huge crowd. She gets this huge applause on the stage. Mr. Trump was invited to visit the Army base last spring by North Country Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. At the signing ceremony, the president said she was the driving force behind his trip. She starts to reassess her power trajectory. Paul Ryan, who was kind of her mentor, retires. So her little path up through the normal establishment ranks in Congress started to seem not as likely. And she flips on a dime. And in the first impeachment becomes Trump's most rabid defender with the most absurd defenses. And she was like a foreign policy neocon Republican who would have been very much on arm the Ukrainians against the Russians, right? Like this, all the least, this would have gone to like one of her core issues. Flips on it anyway, sides with Trump against Zelensky, and is now like literally indistinguishable from like a MAGA troll. You could pick a random MAGA troll Twitter account and Elise's Twitter account, and that one is completely indistinguishable. Since his first day in office, President Trump has fought tirelessly to deliver results for all Americans, despite the Democrats' baseless and illegal impeachment sham. And there was no policy, anything about this. I interviewed tons of mutual friends. She wouldn't talk to me. She emailed me saying that she sees my tweets and is not interested in participating in the book and didn't reply to any other of my entreaties. So to me, like, she is the worst because it's just the most brazen. And it also is the worst at some level because it's paying off for her. I truly think she'll be on a VP shortlist for Trump because he'll want a woman if he runs in 2024. And I think if not that, I think she's on a Speaker of the House trajectory. I didn't even mention in her list of horrors. She's the one who knifed Liz Cheney and took Liz Cheney's job as the House conference chair over Liz Cheney, just saying that a Donald Trump coup was not great. Yeah, I mean, inclined to agree someone like her may be the worst because I think <laughs> precisely because she's not an idiot. This is a smart person. She went to Harvard. Yes. And so she knows what she's doing. And I don't know if she started out with a vacuous moral center or just shape-shifted into a nihilist along the way. I, on some level, I guess it really doesn't matter. You are who you are in the end, and you are what you do. And it's clear where she stands. Part of me is perversely fascinated by some of the people you talk to, the you know Republican operative types who... And maybe they're a minority, but the ones who really, truly hate the cultural left so much so that they pretend that there's just two choices, right? Like wokeness or fascism. <laughs> it's like, how common is that sentiment? I had to put it in the book because it's pretty common. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, this is what was revealed to me. So in all those drunk off the record conversations I was talking about, I just was trying to get people to open up to me. Yeah. 
and just be like, what is driving it? What is driving it? And people kept bringing this up. Like, literally, this was the thing that people were volunteering, like these Republican staffers. I need to come up with something to rationalize going along with semi-fascism, whatever we're calling it these days. But the most jarring quote, this person was knew I was going to quote them but didn't want to be named. He says to me, exactly, the formulation that you just laid out is not an exaggeration. He said that my wife's friends think I'm a racist. My kids are getting these DEI packets. There's cancel culture everywhere. And as a white male, sometimes I feel like my only choice to combat the wokeness is to just think about the one or two things that I agree with Donald Trump on and ride with him. That's not the direct quote because I don't have it in front of me, but that's very close to his direct quote. And I'm just thinking in my head, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to name you in the book, so I'm not going to burn you. But you know that I know who you are. (laughs) Like, how are you not filled with embarrassment to say that? And the answer to that question that I came to later find out, this was one of my first interviews, I came to find out later, is that that's a common sentiment. Like, that's how they all soothe each other, by expressing something to that same effect, maybe not quite as brazen. That is the kind of thing that's like, why I don't have a last chapter in the book is, what do you do about this? Like, what do you do about, like, petty, privileged white dudes' resentments and, like, willingness to go along with Donald Trump over them. I don't have a good answer to that question. I don't know. I mean, I've said before that I think the Republican Party for a very long time has used the culture war as a laundering device for basically plutocratic policies. And they have destroyed the capacity of the state to really help people and used it to protect rich people. And now we have enormous inequalities and a lot of frankly, justified resentment among the public. And you play that game long enough and ultimately you kind of get fascism or revolution. Well, the culture war, though, ended up eating everything. Yeah. And this is, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but like the plutocratic stuff, I and mean, there's still some people who are doing exactly what you're doing, like remaining, but yeah. you can already see this move kind of away from that part. Like the culture war is totally eaten caring about rich people. It worked for a while, but it devoured everything else. Yeah. Totally. That leaves us in a pretty dark place. I mean, I mean, like, you know, it's like there's just no question now, right, Tim? Was this supposed to be an uplifting podcast? People know how I roll. The listeners are familiar. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not known for my sparkling optimism, but I'm working on it. Coming up after one last short break. Who's behind the wheel of the Republican Party right now? question now, right? I mean, this is the GOP is a Trumpist party now, and that means it doesn't really need Trump. I mean, you talk about the incestuous relationship between on the right, between the campaign people and the media and the politicians. And who do you think is actually steering the party now? Is it Fox News? Is it the base? I mean, the politicians themselves seem to be totally hostage (laughs) to both of those things. No, they're totally hostage to the base. Like, look at Trump getting booed over the vaccine thing in Alabama. I recommend taking the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got, no, that's okay. That's all right. You got your freedoms. But I happen to take the vaccine. 
that was a very telling moment. Like it was like one time where he kind of had to back off his own. He doesn't even get to talk about it. Like one of the one good things that happened while he was in there, the Operation Warp Speed. He can't even talk about it without getting booed. So, I guess I would answer your question. I'm stealing this from my other board colleague Sarah Longwell. So credit where due is like it's a triangle of doom. Like it's a chicken and egg thing, trying to determine who is the most responsible. Like the base's grievances are underlying. Some of them are legitimate, by the way. Others of them are illegitimate. The conservative media is stoking the illegitimate grievances mostly, but occasionally there are legitimate grievances about economic, the hollowing out of certain parts of the country. And then the Republican politicians are riding the wave of that grievance mongering. And rather than caring at all about responsibilities of leadership or checks on excesses have now just totally accepted it. And so all three are are responsible and you have to somewhere along that triangle, you have to break it. But where? Who? Like the politicians aren't. Like the conservative media isn't. Is the Republican base going to get less radicalized? That's kind of hard to see. So again, this is why there isn't a last chapter of the book about what to do about all this. I, I think that the best case scenario, and this is an admission against interest, is I think this, what I'm about to recommend is one of these real Marxism has never been tried type situations, like real conservative populism. It's only been failed. (laughs) Yeah, real conservative (laughs) populism has never been tried. But like, the only thing I can think of is that some Republican politician comes along who actually channels people's legitimate grievances and tries to address them. Is there anyone out there doing that? No, and this was, so the reason why I don't think this is really possible and why it's like, real conservative populism has never been tried, is that before the campaign started, J.D. Vance is the answer to that question, right? Like J.D. Vance from the panel, panelist J.D. Vance, the guy that used to be like, Trump is a con man, but our communities are being hollowed out and we need to address them, et cetera. And I don't know that we should care about these forever wars and use our resources out there. Like panelist J.D. Vance is the closest to that. People are very clear eyed, I think, about whether Trump is going to fix a lot of these problems. When I talk to people back home, a lot of times they'll say, well, I don't really trust him. I don't like what he says about this or that. But at least he recognizes that we're struggling. At least he speaks to us. And frankly, when you've gone for 20 or 30 years and you felt like no politician has really recognized your problems, you felt ignored, it's pretty easy for some people to move in and to take advantage of that. But they don't want panelist J.D. Vance. So for J.D. Vance to win the primary, he had to convert into lib-owning, conspiratorial culture-mongering J.D. Vance. I asked folks not to judge me by based on what I I said in 2016, because I've been very open about the fact that I I did say those critical things, and uh, I regret them, and I regret being wrong about the guy. I think that he was a good president. So I really don't think that person exists, but that's kind of the best-case scenario for the party. I interviewed J.D. Vance like four years ago. Totally different dude. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. The guy now is a cartoon character. But like... Someone that tries to do that is still fighting upstream against Fox and against all these other forces, all these other incentive forces that are going to push the more cheap calorie grievance peddling. The one thing that is definitely not happening, which continues to be a pipe dream among my people, is that like the party might go back to just the old plutocratic kind of free market (laughs) Republican Party that doesn't actually really care about culture issues. Like that's never happening. So responsible culture economic populist and culturally populist party is the only hope, but like there's no model for that. You say something I think very true and profound at the end of the book about politics and identity. And I just want to read it aloud here. You say, now I'm quoting. 
for gay people, coming out of the closet is hard because of this change of your identity. It's not only how you look at yourself, but how other people look at you. People you love, your dad, your high school bestie. You're worried that they're going to now see you differently because your identity is changed in their eyes. And so if politics becomes like skin color, like sexuality, untangling that is a lifetime of work and it's therapy. And we should really think about it like that. This to me is absolutely one of the most challenging problems. These cultural divides have mapped neatly onto political divides. And that means our political views are wrapped up with our core identity in really powerful ways. And that means people are entrenched. They're not reachable by facts or arguments or policies because that's not what identity is about. And even some of the cynical careerists you write about in this book, you can see how their professional identities are bound up with their partisan politics. And the price of leaving that behind is enormous and most aren't willing to pay it. It's who they are now. It's their friends. It's their whole lives. I don't know what to do about that, Tim, but that seems like a chasm that may be unbridgeable. Well, I have two answers. And thanks for the kind words about that. It's something that I've thought about a lot. And I think it's a theme that I try to tie to the book because I think it is really the fact that I had to come out of the closet and had to experience that, I think, in some ways helped me be more comfortable with this, right? Like I experienced that challenge and my fears about it and how people are going to view me. And it ended up being the best thing I ever did in my life, right? It was the best choice I ever made. My life trajectory would have been horrible had I decided to, like, stay in the closet and marry the one girlfriend I ever had. Sorry, Stephanie. And turn into Larry Craig, like, tapping my foot in the bathroom, right? My whole trajectory would have been bad with my self-assessment. So I knew that I could do this. Like, this was much easier saying fuck it to being a Republican than that was. So that steeled me a little bit. But these other folks... To your point, the bars they go to, the poker night, the church, the friend group, they're like their dog's name is Reagan. <laughs> like changing all that is like very challenging. So that's the DC class, right? And I think it explains, it doesn't excuse, but it explains why it was so hard. It's tied into their money, right? So it's how they make a living, it's how they see themselves socially. I was with last week uh, someone that works for Liz Cheney. And I was like, How's life? Like, do you still go? You know, he's like, I still get invited to parties, but I don't go. Because it's really awkward. Like my old friends, it's hard to see them. So that's hard. That's challenging for people. Okay. That is also happening now out in America, though, which is something that is kind of relatively new. And it's not totally Trump era, but has gone on steroids in the Trump era, which is that voters out there see themselves as Republican partisans the same way like political operatives do. And so their identity is changing that is very hard, right? If they start posting on Facebook, Black Lives Matter or whatever, their friend group starts to question them and they start to worry about what people are going to think about them. And so pulling people away from that radicalization spiral is really hard and it's going to take a long time. And that's why there's no quick fix to this. But the one nice lesson I have for the book or earnest lesson is that while I showed and want to show no grace to the Republican collaborators who knew better in Washington, the actual people out in America who have gotten kind of sucked into this do need grace and time to be kind of pulled away from that identity Because it's very hard and it's like entangled in there in a much deeper way than I think their voting identity was in the era where we grew up. I mean, look, I live in Mississippi. I grew up here. I love it here. I love the people here. And I felt the instinct more and more to defend, you know, my friends from around the country who want to shit on this part of the country. But there's like a woman down the street, an older woman who has a giant ass flag in her yard that says, you know, Karen's for Trump. Still, still. 
that's not an affirmative statement about like, you know, what she wants to see in the world or like about tax policy, whatever. That is a giant middle finger to everyone on the other side. And boy, I don't know what to It is hard. It makes it hard for people. And this is why I think that I'm happy you live there. And it's a challenge. And I think the people who see Trump and the corrupted culture for what it is to continue to engage in those communities, to talk to some of these people because they need to know that the water is warm and it's welcoming if they want to move away from the darkest elements of this. But obviously that's a big ask. There is sanity and decency underneath so much of that, but it's now been swallowed by all this tribalistic bullshit. And it's, it is very hard to engage in ways now that don't activate these defenses. I don't have the answer for that. I'm not smart enough, but it's a challenge for sure. Me neither, man. I wish I did. What's next for you? I don't know. What do you think I should do? I mean, I'm writing for The Bulwark. I hope people read it. The most rewarding thing I do is I have a Snapchat show, which is watched by mostly 13 to 24-year-old dudes. And the dudes that message me are like, the generic message will be like, I go to a Christian college and I'm a little freaked out by some of the lefty stuff, but the MAGAs and my teachers are insane and I like, I don't know what to do. I feel homeless and I love your show. And I appreciate that because I think that like those are the types of people that you could get nudging down to the bad place, right? Yep. And so I would like to find more ways to kind of engage in that world. But then we'll see. Recommendations are welcome. Look at you, you're on Snapchat. You're so hip, Tim. Check you out. Not really. TikTok is what's really happening. But um, So I'm not that hip, but I'm doing my best. The book is Why We Did It. I don't even really like political books, but this is a hell of a read. And I, I highly recommend it to anyone listening. I really appreciate that, man. I really do. Tim Miller, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks, brother. Really appreciate it. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director. Your feedback really helps. So if you have ideas for future guests or topics or really any thoughts at all, send them to voxconversations at vox.com. And if you liked this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review. That stuff really helps. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.